Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Water. Why am I talking about water? Because that's the tongue-in-cheek title of my message. What are you talking about? So I'm talking about water. Israel is coming into their rainy season. It's rare that Israel doesn't get some rain during Sukkot. Several of the traditional prayers change at Sukkot to incorporate the anticipation and the hope of rain. Sometimes when we have visited Israel, we have had to change the mindset of some of our fellow tourists. When you're a tourist, you want to be able to go from tour site to tour site in your bus, then you get out and you walk around. But when it's raining, you have to put on your raincoat, carry an umbrella, maybe change your shoes. Then everybody gets back on the bus, they're all wet, the seats get wet, the floor gets muddy, there's a level of discomfort. So there's a temptation to pray against rain. And we tell our, our, our other passengers, it's okay to pray that the rain waits until after we get back to the hotel and that it stops raining when we finish eating our breakfast the next morning but please don't pray against rain. In the Middle East, rain is considered a blessing. People dance in the streets for the first rain of the season. And if there's a rain that happens to come and it's not in the middle of the rainy season, you should see everybody outside rejoicing. Everything depends on the availability of water, crops, the animals, life itself. It's rain that makes the desert bloom. It's rain that brings the milk and honey. Water is life. And it was an ancient tradition in the times when the temple of God was standing to conduct a water ceremony during Sukkot. Here's a little description from the Mishnah. He who has not seen the rejoicing at the place of the water drawing has never seen rejoicing in his life. At the conclusion of the first festival day of tabernacles, they descended to the court of the women, where they had made a great enactment. And there they're talking about they had built platforms into the walls so that the women could be up on the platforms to separate them from the men. So they were together in the same area, but not completely together. There were there, golden candlesticks with four golden bowls on the top of each of them and four ladders to each and four youths drawn from the, uh, that's youths to you from New York, uh, from the priestly stock in whose hands were held jars of oil. 
There was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that was not illuminated by the light of the place of the water drawing. Men of piety and good deeds used to dance before them with lighted torches. My version of the Mishnah says juggling lighted torches in their hands and singing songs and praises and Levites without number with harps, lyres, cymbals, trumpets, electric guitars, drums, and other musical instruments. They were upon the 15 steps leading down from the court of the Israelites to the court of the women. And by the way, those 15 steps correspond to the 15 songs of ascent or basically Psalms 120 through 134 from the Babylonian Talmud. The priests would go down to the pool of Siloam. If you've ever visited, there's a tour site at the city of David. And once you're inside, there's an opportunity to go through Hezekiah's tunnel. At the midpoint, there's a place where you can choose to either take the wet path or the dry path. How many people have ever been on the wet path in Hezekiah's tunnel? Some of you, some of you. If you take the wet path, you enter into a part of the tunnel that has flowing water about up to your waist. Eventually, the water flows into a pool at the bottom to the pool of Siloam, where Yeshua told the blind man to wash after he had put mud on his eyes. When he washed, he was healed. Many groups report that prayer for healing in that place has brought miracles. So the priests would go to the pool, bring water to the top, up to the temple, to Mount Moriah, where Abraham sacrificed Isaac, up to the brazen altar, and during the water-pouring ceremony, water would be poured onto the hot altar. According to some accounts, on the last day of Sukkot, the altar was heated to seven times its normal temperature, and the temple area was lit with the oil lamps, as you heard before, brighter than the light of day. Try to imagine, if you will, the light the water being poured onto the altar, the steam, the effect would have been magnificent, likely producing great joy in the hearts of those worshiping there. This was all done to celebrate the coming of the rainy season and the hope of abundance that would come from a year of substantial rain. But, don't you love it, the buts? But the festival of Sukkot is not specifically about water, per se, though it was indirectly. It was about remembering God's provision in the wilderness. By faith, we set aside our lovely homes. We dwell in tents for a week. And as some of you did, I, didn't, I was there, but I wasn't overnight in tents in the wilderness. Uh, in our obedience, God will provide for us according to our needs, whether it's rain, water to drink, crops, livestock, whatever we need. When we humble ourselves, he lifts us up. Sukkot is not only the end of the fall feasts. It's the end of all the feasts. Because as you probably have read in Leviticus 23, there are eight feasts, right? 
So there's Pesach, which is actually not a holiday. Pesach is not a holiday. But the first day of unleavened bread is. And the last day. Those are two right there. Also, the um, first fruits, which comes in the middle of that week, the day after the, the Sabbath in that week, is uh, also not a holiday, but it's one of the feasts mentioned. So we've had two actual holidays. And then there's Shavuot at the end of seven weeks. So there's your third one. The fourth one is Rosh Hashanah. The fifth one is Yom Kippur. And the sixth and seventh ones are the first and eighth days of Sukkot. So there's your seven. But I said eight. Anybody want to volunteer what the eighth one is? I didn't hear it. Simcha Torah is not in Leviticus 23. Shabbat. It's Shabbat. Shabbat is your eighth one. It's actually the first one in Leviticus 23. So many commentators tell us that the spring feasts are for the salvation of Israel. And you can work that out on your own. But I want to talk about the fall feasts because they are often said to be for the salvation of the whole earth. The sound of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah declares the return of the king. The Day of Atonement, not just for the high priest, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world, because how does that happen? How is it for also the whole world? Israel is considered a kingdom of priests, a mamlechek kohanim. It is Israel's role to intercede for the nations of the earth. The blessing to Abraham was that he would bless all the nations of the earth. When the high priest and his family are atoned for, they then present offerings for the atonement of the people. That's Yom Kippur. Symbolic of that great day, the day of judgment that's coming, the day of atonement that's coming for the whole earth. And five days after Yom Kippur, Sukkot begins. And as you heard, you may have you heard 70 bulls, but it's 13 on the first day and 12 on the second day and 11 and 10 and 9 and 8 and 7. So you add all those up. I'm a, I'm a math major, so it's the, set, the last day is 7 bulls. The first day is 13. You add those together, that's 20. You double it. No, you don't. You multiply by 7, that's 140. Then you have it, and that's... 40, 70 bulls, 70 bulls, anyway. I, I'm good at math, I'm not that good at arithmetic. So, if one bull represents a nation, 70, as David mentioned earlier, represents the 70 nations of the world. It's a figurative number representing the nations of the earth. And uh, this is not just my idea. Many Jewish commentators say the same thing. So we have this feast. God's provision in the wilderness, and at other times as well. We incorporate the nations, we pray for rain, and Zechariah draws all this together. We heard about this last week. He said in Zechariah 14, Finally, everyone remaining from all the nations that came to attack Jerusalem will go up every year to worship the king Adonai Tzvaot, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the festival of Sukkot. If
any of the families of the earth does not go up to Yerushalayim to worship the king, Adonai Tzvaot, no rain will fall on them. If the family of Egypt doesn't go up, if they refuse to come, they will have no annual overflow from the Nile. Moreover, there will be the plague, which Adonai will strike the nations that don't go up to keep the festival of Sukkot. This will be Egypt's punishment and the punishment of all the nations that don't go up to keep the festival of Sukkot. Note that the punishment to the nations is no rain, no water, it's famine, it's plague, it's death. These verses were known to the people in the days of Yeshua, so the theme of water is a strong message in the Feast of Sukkot. And I think everybody here is familiar with the passage, part of which was read today from chapter 7 of Yochanan. Uh, I would encourage you to read the whole chapter, uh, of course, but for now, just a few verses, starting in verse 37. Now, on the last day of the festival, try to put yourself there, on the last day of the festival, try to put yourself there with the light lit up, the courtyard lit up, the water being poured on the altar. Try to put yourself there. Yeshua stood up on Hashanah Rabbah and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and keep drinking. Whoever puts his trust in me, as the scriptures say, rivers of living water will flow from his innermost being. Now he said this. Now, don't you love it when there's a parenthesis in scripture? Now he said this about the spirit whom those who trusted in him would receive later. The spirit had not yet been given because Yeshua had not yet been glorified. So in this scripture, we find Yeshua encouraging people to put their trust and to drink the water of trusting Yeshua. That's the water, trusting Yeshua. And out of their inmost being will flow rivers of living water. He's talking about the spirit. So the water represents spirit, the indwelling presence of God. But now in our days, ever since Yeshua's visit to that Sukkot celebration in the temple, the spirit has been poured out. The spirit has been given. This is the promise that he spoke about after his resurrection in Acts chapter 1 in verses 4 and 5. He said at, at one of these gatherings, he instructed them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father promised. It's a promise. Which you had heard about from me, for Yochanan used to immerse people in water, but in a few days you will be immersed in the Ruach HaKodesh. Notice the contrast between immersing in water versus immersion in the Spirit. There is one baptism, but, and that's what the Scriptures tell us, but each of the immersions mentioned in Scripture is identified with the others. We know that when we are immersed into the name of Yeshua, which 
Our first act of obedience immediately after that is to be immersed in water, which represents his death, his burial. So it's kind of like a funeral ritual. But if we die with him, we are also raised with him because the life we live is no longer ours, but God indwelling us by his spirit. So we are immersed in water, buried in water, filled with water, the water of the spirit of Yeshua, the same spirit that raised Messiah from the dead. How special is this? Why is this something for us to celebrate, especially at this time? See, Peter confirms that it's something very special. In 1 Peter 1.10, the prophets who prophesied about this gift of deliverance that was meant for you pondered and inquired diligently about it. They were trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of the Messiah in them was referring in predicting the Messiah's sufferings and the glorious things to follow. It was revealed to them that their service when they spoke about these things was not for their own benefit, but for yours. And these same things have now been proclaimed to you by those who communicated the good news to you through the Ruach HaKodesh sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. How should we feel about having a promise, a gift that angels long to look into? Grateful? Unworthy? Probably not proud? since we didn't do one thing to deserve this, except possibly humble ourselves to the point of realizing that we are completely helpless and cannot accomplish one thing apart from Yeshua's presence. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who stay united with me and I with them are the ones who bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can't do a thing. So what's the bottom line? The whole world knows that water is vital for life, but they don't yet know that the spirit that comes from God is eternal life. That spirit is Yeshua's presence living in us, and how do we celebrate this? We celebrate by taking up our cross daily. We celebrate by acknowledging God in our prayers, praying without ceasing. We celebrate by doing good works, which is the candle that we put on top of our bushel basket, not hiding our good works. And when we come together, we celebrate Yeshua's presence in each one of us. So, Bringing it all together as a conclusion, I want to elaborate on this celebration of coming together as those who have rivers of living water flowing 
from the innermost parts of our being. Now, I'm just going to say to you, if you've never experienced rivers of living water flowing from the innermost part of your being, it's a promise. It's yours. It belongs to you. By faith, receive it. By faith, receive it. Because it's true and it's yours. There's nothing preventing it. <clears throat> At the Pesach meal, before he was crucified, Yeshua took the matzah and blessed it and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. He took the cup of wine and blessed it and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Okay, bread and wine, body and blood. But, you ask, where's the water? I'm glad you asked. Patience, grasshopper, I'm getting there. Kung Fu, it's a, it's a great, anyway. The biblical concept of remembrance is not like when you take a history test in school. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Or maybe you memorize this one. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in 75. Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. Okay. So we can memorize historical facts. But biblical remembrance refers to something more. It refers to bringing the past into the present. The rabbis tell us that when we eat the Pesach meal, we are to be like the wise child and participate as though we were there with our forefathers when they were freed from bondage in Egypt. When we read the Torah, as we wonderfully do each week, thanks be to some, in our meetings here, we listen as though we were at Mount Sinai hearing the words spoken to us. And I would say that we remember at Pesach and at other times as if we were there with all of the apostles in that room with Yeshua when he broke and said, take and eat, take and drink. When we partake of the bread, and the wine of the Seudat Adon, the Lord's Supper, the bread and wine are symbols. But symbols only mean something if there's a reality behind them. What's the reality? What is the reality behind the symbols? We are told that the bread is his body. We eat the bread as a symbol of somehow eating his body. We drink the wine as a symbol of somehow drinking Yeshua's blood. How are we to understand this? If you think it's easy, let me tell you. Note in John chapter 6, verse 66. That's right. I said John 666. After Yeshua told those who were following him that they would be required to eat his flesh and drink his blood... We read, quote, from this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer traveled around with him. I figure they probably thought he was Looney Tunes. 
but, it, but, it, but, it, but that's all, folks. Think about this. When you eat something, what happens to what you eat? It becomes a part of your body. If you eat the matzah, which represents Yeshua's broken body, then his broken body becomes part of your body, and you become one with his body, and you are also living with his brokenness. The reality behind the symbol of eating the matzah is that everyone who partakes together is therefore one body. Together, part of the body of Yeshua, and he is present in his body in a very literal way. We are one together. We live with a death sentence, yes, to be broken, just as Yeshua also was killed. Yeah, how do you like that gospel? How do you like telling the gospel like this? Come, follow Yeshua and die with us. Yeah, right? Um, but we who die know that we have eternal life. We share this common identity and this common future as living sacrifices. When we drink the wine, it's a symbol of the blood. What is the reality? The wine goes in, into our bloodstream. You can actually measure the amount of alcohol in your bloodstream with a blood test. The reality is that the lifeblood of Yeshua was poured out and now flows in your veins. Leviticus tells us that life is in the blood. And when the blood is poured out, the life is poured out. Together, we share the life of Yeshua in us. That's why it's often called communion, a sharing together. Literally, we share together all things in Yeshua. We are his body, and his very life flows in our veins, and he is here. I often encourage people to take a few seconds to look directly into the eyes of those who are present. It's the one time we're allowed to do that without creating a social faux pas. I mean, you know, when you look somebody in the eyes, you know, that's pretty scary. A little uncomfortable, right? But maybe for a few seconds, if we look into one another's eyes and recognize Yeshua, acknowledge Yeshua, acknowledge Yeshua, see his life, see his death. Together we've partaken of Yeshua and have become one with him. And together we are bound to one another in a life sentence. Yes, there's a death sentence, but it's an eternal life sentence. Yes, remember, we remember that he died on a cross to redeem us from bondage to sin. Yes, that's a historical fact and it's incontrovertible. He did do that. But we also, I believe, should recognize that he's here through the Spirit, and that's where the water comes in. He is presence, present with us, our bodies together, one body, His life flowing in our veins. His Spirit has been given, God dwelling in us, speaking to us and through us, rivers of living water flowing from the innermost parts of our being. And we can hear His voice. And the... This exciting reality doesn't exist anywhere else on earth. In Revelation 1, <clears throat> verses 12 and 13a, John describes what he sees in his vision. I turned around to see who was speaking to me, 
<clears throat> and when I had turned, I saw seven gold menorahs, and among the menorahs was someone like a son of man. The menorahs are the, 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 the churches of Revelation, so the, the, the congregations of Revelation. And Yeshua walked among the candlesticks. It doesn't matter how small or large your menorah is. We are a gathering of disciples and he's here walking among us. Can you imagine that it's true? That he really is here walking among us? He speaks his living word for us. His word is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. Dividing between the soul and the spirit. Between the joints and the marrow. And able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. Today isn't just another Shabbat. And it isn't business as usual. And it's not just another feast. It's not just the last feast. There is no such thing as just another feast or just another Shabbat. What is he whispering to you? What is he speaking to us? Do you think he wants to say something to us? Do some of us need to drink more deeply of the water of what he is offering us? Do some of us need confirmation of a direction that we believe he's showing us? Do some of us need a little more hope? A little more courage to carry on the, in the face of adversity? Do some of us need to take up our cross and become a minister of life to people in our lives? His words are truth and life, and he wants us to drink deeply and share together. Again, this sort of sharing doesn't exist anywhere else on earth except here and now in his body, the body of Yeshua. And so when we come tonight, let's be prepared to rejoice in the Torah and in the spirit. Amen. Thank you.